What's up guys? Welcome back to Never Graduate where we don't just cover college sports, we live college sports. I'm your host Tyler Graves and I appreciate you guys being here with me today on the podcast. This thing keeps on growing and growing week after week and I have you guys to thank for that. So thank you very much for being here. That is obviously the most important thing you can do to support this podcast. But if you haven't already, it'd also be great if you guys follow the podcast on Twitter. That's at NoGradPod. Spread the word to friends and family, coworkers, anyone and everyone in your life that is remotely interested in college football. Tell them this is the podcast for them. And if you're really enjoying the podcast, which I hope that you are, and you want to be awesome and go above and beyond to help this podcast grow, it'd be amazing if you would let other people know about it by leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify too, if they let you do that. I'm not exactly sure how that works on Spotify, but I know on Apple Podcasts, you can leave those reviews and click those five stars. You have no idea how much that helps a new podcast grow and attract new listeners. So if you do like the podcast, any and all help along those lines would be greatly, greatly appreciated. But as for today's show, I'm going to call a little bit of an audible here this week. I know over the past two weeks, I've been going through the 2022 college football schedule, identifying the most important games each week. We did September a couple weeks ago. We did October last week. So today, this week would be the day to wrap all of that up and do November. But the more I think about it, the less relevant that seems to be to me because It's just so hard. It's so hard to predict which games are going to be most important that far out into the season. September, you got a pretty good idea because most teams are still in contention early on. October gets a little bit tougher, a little bit murkier, but you can still make a reasonably accurate projection in October. November, yeah, I don't know about November. That's a lot tougher. So I've been thinking about skipping the month of November for a week or so. I know we got started on this this train a couple of weeks ago, so I wanted to finish it. I'm one of those guys, when I start something, I want to finish it. I don't like to leave things kind of just hanging out there. So I wanted to finish it, but then I got this idea to do an Upset Alerts episode, which I got really excited about, but I didn't know if I would have time to fit it in before the season kicked off. So I had to make a decision. What do I do here? So since I run the podcast and I'm the one making the content decisions, exclusively making the content decisions for this podcast, I ultimately decided to do what I wanted to do, which is the upset alerts episode, because quite honestly, that's more exciting and more fun to me. So that's what we are doing on today's episode. I'm putting teams on upset alert each week of the college football season. And let me explain what I mean by quote-unquote upset alert. These are emphatically, hear me here, these are emphatically not upset picks. I am not picking these teams to lose. I'm not calling for the outright upset yet. For me to do that, to go that next step and call for these outright upsets, I need to actually see these teams in action before I'm ready to go that far. But what these are, they are games that I have my eye on closely here a month before the season starts as potential earth-shattering, season-changing, mouth-gaping, would-be upsets. These are potential upset spots. Most of them involve bigger name programs. Not all of them, but most of them do. They at least involve programs that are viewed favorably, I would say, as potential title contenders of some sort, be that 
division titles, conference titles, or national titles. And when I put a team on upseller, I want to make sure I'm clear about this before we get into it. If I put a team on upseller, it can't be like a three or four point spread. Like that to me, that's almost too small of a margin to even call it an upset. I guess technically by definition, if an underdog wins a game, it's an upset. But like if it's three or four points for a spread, like that's a mild upset at most. That's not season changing. That's not earth shattering. So these games that I'm going to highlight for you today are games that I have chosen as my upset alert picks each week of the season that no one is really talking about or predicting in the preseason as a upset spot. So those are my two criteria here. It's got to be a pretty sizable spread. I would say at least like a touchdown-ish spread, if not more. Ideally more than that, but at least a touchdown-ish. And it's got to be a game that no one out there on a national scale is really talking about openly as a potential upset spot, that no one's really taking seriously as a game that the favorite could potentially lose. These are the games that when you take out the helmet schedule and you're going down each team in a conference's schedule and you're marking out the wins and the losses, these are games that without even really thinking about it, you put an automatic W for. But maybe upon further review, upon closer inspection, it might not be as clear-cut a W as you might initially think. Or at least there's that potential for it to not end up being a W for that team. And let me give you an example of kind of what I'm talking about here. So Georgia, for example, is a two-touchdown favorite against South Carolina in Columbia week three. So on one hand, that does meet one of my criteria. Georgia is a heavy favorite on the road against South Carolina week three. So normally that would qualify for an upseller, right? Georgia, significant favorite on the road. Maybe South Carolina can find a way to beat them. But it doesn't really meet my other criteria because it's way too popular of a preseason upset pick. Too many people are talking about that as a potential spot where George could trip up early in the season, replacing all those defenders and all that inexperience on their defense. That wouldn't qualify because it doesn't meet both of those criteria. Too many people are calling for that. So it's kind of on the radar, right? So I'm looking for off the radar potential upset picks in this segment. So I hope that makes sense. I think it's easy enough, but let's go ahead and let's get started with week one here. Now, this one is a little bit different than the rest of them. I don't have like a power program. I wouldn't call this program a power program. I guess they are one of the more higher profile programs in the Pac-12, especially once USC and UCLA officially make the move to the Big Ten. This will be one of the remaining probably top two programs in the Pac-12, but I don't think they're a power player on the national scale. At least they haven't been over the past four or five years, but the spread is huge in this game. And no one's really talking about this. And I get why no one's talking about this game because no one really cared about them last year. I'm talking about the Washington Huskies. They were terrible last year. Obviously, we know Jimmy Lake got fired. Kalen DeBoer's coming as the new head coach. And I'm sure most of you have no idea who Washington is even playing in week one because it's not a power five team. They've got Michigan State a couple weeks later, but in week one, they're not playing a power five team. But they are on upset alert in week one on this podcast. They are facing Kent State at home. Now, you're probably sitting there saying, Kent State, Tyler, come on, what are you talking about? They're going to kill Kent State. Yeah, probably, maybe, but I don't think that's a done deal. I know this is a new season for Washington. I know they have a brand new coaching staff, but let's not forget that Washington lost week one at home last year, not even to a G5 team. They lost to an FCS team. They lost to Montana at home to open the season last year. 
So let's not act like this would be entirely unprecedented. They even lost to Colorado, who was awful last year. This is a team that went 4-8 overall last year and 3-6 and in the Pac-12. And yes, they have a brand new coaching staff who you would like to think would be an improvement over the previous coaching staff, but we don't know that for sure. It's also week one. It's the first game of the Kalen DeBoer era. And too many of the players that were holding Washington back last year are still on this roster and still projected to be major players for this team. And we know offense has been the problem for them. Offense was the primary problem for them last year. I mean, Dylan Morris was very, very bad for them at quarterback last year. I mean, I I hate to pile on guys, but dude, he was bad. 6.8 yards per attempt, 14 touchdowns, 12 interceptions. Their entire approach offensively, I will say, was just abysmal. They didn't have a chance to be good on offense because the way they approached offensive football was just very, very antiquated. But they do bring Kalen DeBoer, so you like to think that would give the offense a little bit of a shot in the arm. We know he has reputation. It's a great offensive mind. And maybe he unlocks Dylan Morris's potential. And that's assuming Dylan Morris even wins the job. He brought in Michael Penix, who he knew from his days at Indiana. But my question would be, when has Michael Penix actually been like a really good quarterback? He's been okay. But I mean, when he was at Indiana, you know, last year... He dealt with some injuries, but in 2020, I know Indiana had a really nice year in 2020, got a lot of national love, and it was a great year for their program. It really was. And Penix was a a big part of that, but he really wasn't that good. I mean, 56% completion percentage, 7.5 yards per attempt. I know there's some familiarity there with Kalen DeBoer and his offense, obviously, and that is reason for hope, I guess, for the Washington fan base. But if you're resting your hopes on Michael Penix Jr., I just don't know, man. I don't know if he's ever really been that guy. Then you have Sam Heward, who is this big former five-star prospect that's kind of been waiting in the wings, waiting his turn. And I just don't know if his turn's ever going to come at this point. I know he's still young. There's still time. But at this point, you got to be wondering if he, if he wasn't able to win the job last year. That was my thing. Like As bad as Dylan Morris was, Heward still couldn't win the job last year. If you couldn't win the job last year and that train wreck of an offense, I don't know when you're ever going to win that job. So I just don't know if they have the answer at quarterback. And if they don't have the answer at quarterback, are they really going to be able to turn the offense around in week one of the Kalen DeBoer era? And as bad as the offense was, the defense was really what killed them. I mean, that's honestly what got Jimmy Lake fired. Well, I guess that and then like hulking out on his own players, that that too was a factor, obviously. But the defense fell off a cliff. And Jimmy Lake was the former defensive coordinator. He's a defensive guy. But man, last year was a problem for them on that side of the ball as well. I mean, if you look at some of the numbers last year defensively, I mean, I guess scoring defense was okay. They were 37th nationally, about 23 points a game. Total defense was solid, top 25 total defense, but they could not stop the run to save their lives. They gave almost 200 yards a game on the ground, almost five yards per carry. And that's why Washington went four and eight. I mean, their offense has been bad. That's nothing new. Ever since Chris Peterson retired, their offense has been a problem for them. So you kind of expect that, but they were able to play good enough defense that they could at least stay competitive in games. But when the offense is terrible, and then the defense falls off a cliff, well, that's a recipe for 4-8 and eight, losing to Montana at home to open a season. So I don't expect Washington to be great right off the bat. At least I don't think that's a guarantee. I know Washington fans want to believe that, and I do think Kalen DeBoer is going to be an upgrade at head coach, and he's going to fix some of the offensive problems eventually, but that early in the season, I don't know. I still got to think there's going to be some major growing pains and some major issues for them offensively. But it's not just Washington not being a team that I really believe in. Kent State is a good MAC team, guys. 
They are a legitimate MAC team. They played in the MAC title game last year. They lost, but they got there. They lose Dustin Crumman quarterback, who was very good for them, but they get a lot back on offense outside of him. Dante Cephas is one of the best wide receivers you've never heard of. Over 1,000 yards last year. They got a great one-two punch at the running back position with Marquez Cooper and Xavier Williams. They combined for over 2,000 yards last year. They have seven starters back on defense. This is not a new thing for them. They've played big-time Power 5 teams. They do it really every year. They played three Power 5 teams last year on the road. This is not a new experience for this team. I think this is a sneaky, sneaky week one game for Washington. Washington is a 21 and a half point favorite in this game. As of right now, I have time to change my mind. I have not put money down on it yet, but if that line sticks at 21 and a hook, I'm going to put money on Kent State to at the very least cover this spread. I'm not going to bet on them on the money line to an outright, but I'm putting money down unless I completely change my mind here, which I don't think I'm going to do. I feel really strong about this if it stays at 21 and a half. I'm going to put money on Kent State to cover that spread. I'm not even sure Washington can score that many points. I mean, I got to see that first. And I know Kent State can score points. Kent State's going to score some points. They might not score 25, 30 points, but I think they can score enough to keep this game within three touchdowns. And an outright upset would not completely shock me here. Again, I don't believe in Washington coming off last year. Year one, Kalen DeBoer is going to be some growing pains transitioning there. I think Kent State is a good MAC team. Miami of Ohio is going to be the number one team in that division in the MAC, but Kent State is right there. So just one to watch, just one to watch week one that I don't think anyone else is even remotely paying attention to. And then another game in week two that I think is completely off the radar. No one's talking about this as an upset spot. No one's really even talking about this period right now in the preseason because it's not a glamour matchup. But Wazoo... The Washington State Cougars are heading to Madison, Wisconsin in week two as a 13 and a half point underdog. Again, I'm not sitting here calling for the outright upset here right now. I want to see both these teams play week one, and I don't even know how much that'll tell us in week one with their overmatched opponents. But I think Wazoo has a legit shot to pull this upset. I'm closer to calling this as an outright upset pick than I would be Kent State at Washington. I think Washington State has a legitimate shot to upset Wisconsin, and it's a combination of things. Number one, it is a large part of the fact that I just, I don't believe in Wisconsin. I really don't believe in Wisconsin. I don't believe in Graham Mertz. The program has been very stable. This is the pinnacle of stability in college football, but what, But Wisconsin is what they are. They are what they are. They are essentially the exact same team year in and year out. The only thing that changes are the players themselves. In some years, they're more talented than others. Some years, they're more experienced than others, but they look the same. The players look the same. The offense looks the same. The defense looks the same. Nothing ever changes. And there is some virtue in that because they're at least always in the Big Ten West picture. They're in the conversation there. But on the other hand, they don't have the ceiling that some of these other other programs in the Big Ten have. They, They are not ever really going to be a legitimate playoff or national title contender with that formula. And Graham Mertz, for all the hype he got coming out of high school as the guy who's going to change the game for Wisconsin at quarterback, he's been much the same as every Wisconsin quarterback. In fact, I would say he's been worse than your average Wisconsin quarterback. I mean, the numbers are bad. I mean, he started off really hot in that first game in 2020, but really cooled off the rest of the way. And last year, he was just flat out bad. 59.5% completion percentage, under 60%, under 2,000 yards passing, only 6.9 yards per attempt, 10 touchdowns to 11 interceptions, only a 121.3 quarterback rating. The guy, any way you cut it, was not good. He was a problem 
for Wisconsin last year. And guys, that Wisconsin defense was awesome last year. We always talk about how great Georgia's defense was, and rightfully so, the Georgia defense was fantastic, the best in the country. But Wisconsin's defense was right there. Like wherever Georgia was and whatever ranking you're looking at, whatever statistical category you're looking at, Wisconsin was right there. So they found a way to go nine and four and six and three in the Big Ten despite having an absolute liability at quarterback because their defense was that good. But I have some questions about their defense this year. They only returned three starters. They're losing essentially everybody off last year's team. And I know you can say the same thing about a team like Georgia, of course, because Georgia's losing a lot of guys. You saw those guys get drafted in the NFL draft back in, what was that, late April, early May, whatever, whenever that was. But Wisconsin does not recruit like Georgia. It takes more time for them to build that back up and get the experienced players in there than it does for a team like Georgia, who is truly just in a reload situation. Now, I do 100% believe in Jim Leonard as a defensive coordinator. I think he is one of the best, if not the best, defensive coordinators in the entire country. That guy is the real deal. But I have some questions about the pieces that he has to work with this year. And if you combine that with Graham Mertz being your quarterback, and yes, you get Braylon Allen back at running back, who is fantastic. I don't know if you guys know, he was only 17 last year, right? How many times do you hear him talk about that? Every single freaking game, the guy played about seven times a game. But he's back this year. He was a guy that really kind of came on about halfway through the year. He's a big, strong, physical back. I mean, he is a Wisconsin running back. That's what he is. But they also lose their three top receivers from last year. Lose Danny Davis, Kendrick Pryor, Jake Ferguson at tight end. Those guys are gone, and they're supposed to be better offensively. I know they're bringing Bobby Ingram as a new offensive coordinator. Hopefully change things up, but... The Wisconsin offense never changes. It's always the same. So I'll believe their offense changes when I actually see that. So I think Wisconsin is vulnerable here. And I know Washington State was not a great team last year, but they did close out the season strong, won their last two games, beat Washington in the Apple Cup 40-13, to and got to a bowl game. They lost that game. They ended up 7-6 and on the year. They were 6-3 and in the Pac-12. So once they made the coaching change from Nick Rolovich to Jake Dickert, they had a pretty good season once that happened. And so Jake Dicker was able to parlay that into the full-time job. But the real reason to watch out for Washington State here is the transfer they've got at at quarterback. I'm sure a lot of you have probably heard the name, but if you haven't, you need to make sure you remember this name. This dude's name is Cameron Ward. He's a transfer from Incarnate Word, which is a small school in Texas. But this dude, I know it's a small school. I know it's the FCS, but he absolutely lit up the FCS last year. 47 touchdowns, 4,600 yards passing. He was a Walter Payton Award finalist, which is basically the FCS equivalent of the Heisman Trophy. And how does this guy from Incarnate Word in Texas end up on the Palouse? Well, he fought his offensive coordinator. His offensive coordinator, Eric Morris, is an air raid guy who took the offensive coordinator job at Washington State. So there you go. There's the connection. And with all of the big time players that Wisconsin is going to have to replace last year, guys like Leo Cheval, Jack Sanborn having to replace all those guys on that fantastic Wisconsin defense from last year, having to play Washington State, Cam Ward and Washington State with what I believe is going to be a very prolific offense, having to face them week two when they still are going to be trying to figure some things out defensively, figuring out their personnel. I think that could potentially be a scary spot for Wisconsin. Again, I'm not ready to call for that outright upset yet, but it would not shock me at all if Wazoo went into Madison and pulled this upset. So yes, I'm definitely going to be putting the Badgers on upset alert week two at home against Washington State. Okay, moving on to week three. Now, I know this is a spot where a lot of people would put Georgia at South Carolina, but as I previously explained, that doesn't really fit both my criteria because I think that's just way too popular of an upset pick. Too many people are talking about that 
in the preseason for me to go with that one. So I'm going to go. This one is probably the most off the radar pick of all the, the picks I've got here, of all the potential upset alert spots. And this one is this one barely made the list. I was trying to find one that wasn't Georgia and South Carolina because we're going to talk about Georgia later on, and that's just too popular. So this is kind of a fringe one because Purdue is the favorite in this game. At least I project they're going to be the favorite in this game. But kind of like Washington, Purdue's on a power program. I'm going to include them on this list, though, because... They are certainly in the conversation to big to win the Big Ten West. There are people out there that are picking Purdue with Aiden O'Connell coming back with how they end the season with that crazy win in the Music City Bowl against Tennessee to take the next step and win the Big Ten West and play for a Big Ten title. I'm not one of those people, but those people exist. There are people out there doing that. So by virtue of that, they made the list here. Again, this is like the fringiest pick I've got here, but my week three upset alert is Purdue at Syracuse. And like Wisconsin and Washington State, it's partly a lack of belief in Purdue or questions about Purdue and their true viability as a Big Ten West contender. And also a little bit about Syracuse. I think that's a team that has some offensive weapons. They were really good on defense last year, which no one really talks about because no one cared about them last year. And they have some intriguing pieces offensively. Now, they got to improve the passing game, which that was a problem for them last year. But they're an intriguing team. I think they are a scary team that's going to upset somebody this year. And I think that Purdue could be that first victim. My questions about Purdue really pertain to the offense. Like Defensively, they're fine. They're okay. But they lose George Karloftis, who was the best player on defense last year. The defensive coordinator, Brad Lambert, has taken the D.C. job at Wake Forest. So he's no longer there. So I think the defense is very well could take a step back this year. And I don't think the Purdue offense is going to be as prolific as they were the second half of last season once they settled on Aiden O'Connell as their quarterback. I have questions about who their top receiver is going to be. Who are the guys that O'Connell is throwing to? David Bell is gone. Milton Wright, who was going to be the guy to replace David Bell, was going to be the number one guy. He's out for academic reasons. Now, Jeff Brom is a great offensive coach. They almost always have great offenses there. But this year, I'm not 100% sold on that fact. And this game is at Syracuse. It's in a dome, which Purdue never plays in. It's just a different environment. And I do think that Syracuse, like I said, is a sneaky, dangerous team that has the ability to jump up and bite somebody. They were surprisingly good on defense last year. No one really talked about them because I know it's Syracuse and they weren't good last year. I mean, what they went five and seven, two and six in the ACC last year, but they were a top 25 defense last year in both total defense and yards per play allowed. And they have eight starters returning from that defense. Coordinator Tony White does a fantastic job on that side of the ball and he doesn't get any credit for it. Now, offensively, which is usually under Dino Babers, that's what Syracuse has been known for. Like when they had that good year a couple years ago, when they won, what, 19 games a couple years ago, their offense was the reason for that. It wasn't the case a year ago. And it's not that they didn't have talented players. I mean, Sean Tucker was one of the best running backs in the entire country last year. I mean, the guy was just four yards away from being a 1,500-yard rusher, averaged 6.1 yards per attempt. Garrett Schrader is a dynamic runner in his own right. The transfer from Mississippi State had 781 yards on the ground, 14 touchdowns, 26 touchdowns between those two, a dynamic one-two punch in the run game for Syracuse. But the problem was Garrett Schrader was a disaster throwing the football. At times, they didn't even try to throw the football. I mean, he threw for under 1,500 yards, nine touchdowns to four interceptions. But I do think that Schrader has more potential. Now, Mississippi State, he got moved to receiver his last year there. He comes over to Syracuse, wins the job. But he had like a whole year of development that was just wasted because he was playing receiver at, at 
Mississippi State. But now he's had a full year as a starter under his belt. I do expect him to take a stride forward this year. But a big reason why I'm a believer in the Syracuse offense taking a significant step forward this year is they brought in the Virginia Offensive Brain Trust. So Robert Denai was offense coordinator at Virginia the past couple of years under Bronco Mendenhall. And if you weren't watching their offense, you were flat out missing out because that was probably the most fun offense to watch in college football. Just from like a game calling standpoint, like play calling standpoint, how they structure their offense. They were doing things offensively at Virginia, especially with Brennan Armstrong, that no one else in the country was doing. Things I'd never seen before. And Robert and I and the rest of their staff offensively, they have a bunch of them they brought over from Virginia. It's not just Robert and I. They've done a really good job of featuring dual threat mobile quarterbacks. Whether it's Bryce Perkins a couple years ago when they won the ACC Coastal, whether it's Brent Armstrong who was a dynamic passer for them, but was also a fantastic runner. They didn't run him as much in design runs last year because he was dealing with a little bit of an injury, but when that guy is healthy, he is a dynamic running quarterback. And so they figured out different ways to get them involved and, and do all sorts of different things with Keaton Thompson. It's a fantastic offense to watch. And I'm very curious to see what they're going to be able to do with Garrett Schrager. Basically what they did at Virginia is they made a living off of taking unconventional type talents and fitting and finding ways to feature them and maximize their abilities. Because Brent Armstrong is an unconventional quarterback. If you watched him play, he's 100% an unconventional quarterback. So is Bryce Perkins, very unconventional. But they were all extraordinarily productive in that offense because Robert and I and the rest of that offensive staff got extraordinarily creative and found ways to utilize their abilities and maximize what they were able to bring to the table. And I have a feeling that Robert and I is going to be able to do that with Garrett Schrader. He has limitations as a passer. There's zero doubt about that. But have you seen Brendan Armstrong throw a football? It's not a pretty looking ball, but he finds a way to be effective within that offense. That's one of the reasons I'm not so high on Virginia this year is I don't know if Brendan Armstrong is going to be as productive and effective without Robert Anai, outside of that system. So I'm curious to see how that plays out. But I do think Garrett Schrader is going to be the beneficiary of Robert Anai's offensive like mad scientists play calling here this year. So I think this is a very legitimate upset spot. I don't know. I haven't been able to find a line for this game. It's completely off the radar. No one's talking about it. No one really cares about it. But I do think, I know that Purdue is a, a darling for some people as a Big Ten West title pick. And I think that Syracuse has a chance to upset them week three in the Carrier Dome. All right, so we've made it through the first three weeks of the season. I got to go a little bit faster here or we'll never get through all these. I got 12 weeks. I'm not going to do rivalry week because are there really any upsets in rivalry week? I guess technically, yes, an underdog could win the game. But for me, all bets are off when it comes to rivalry week. You throw out the record books and chaos happens. Chaos reigns supreme that last week of the season. So we're going to go through the first 12 weeks of the year. I've made it through three, so we've got nine more to go. So I'm going to go a little bit faster with these. But coming up week four, I've got Notre Dame on upset alert when they traveled to Chapel Hill to take on Mac Brown and the North Carolina Tar Heels. Now, this was another fringe one because Notre Dame is only a six and a half point favorite as of right now. It depends on what sports we look at, six and a half to seven points. So it's right there at a touchdown, right about a touchdown. So we'll we'll say it fits a criteria there. And this is certainly not a game that I've heard anyone talk about 
a game that Notre Dame could potentially lose this season. You've heard them talk about USC, maybe Clemson, but North Carolina is not a team on the radar as a team that could potentially upset Notre Dame, especially after you lose a guy like Sam Howell. But I find North Carolina to be a very intriguing team this year. Obviously, they're losing Sam Howell, as I mentioned. That's a big loss for them. He was the best quarterback they've had in quite some time in Chapel Hill. But there are some intriguing pieces here. Number one, they have Josh Downs coming back, who might be the best receiver in the country. I know, obviously, Jackson Smith and Jigbo would have something to say about that. I know Jordan Addison would have something to say about that. But Josh Downs is at least in that conversation. That guy is a stud. I think Antoine Green's a guy that could be a really nice one-two punch with Josh Brown. Josh Downs at receiver. British Brooks did some nice things down the stretch with them at the running back position. The big question for North Carolina is going to be the quarterback position. We know that. Is it going to be Drake May, the highly recruited redshirt freshman, or is it going to be Jacoby Criswell, a guy who's been around for a couple years? We'll see how that plays out during fall camp. But if North Carolina hits on the quarterback position, that's a big if, but if they hit on either Drake May or Jacoby Criswell, this team actually could end up being a sneaky good football team. I know they were not good on defense last year. They haven't been good on defense in a while. They bring in Gene Chizik to write the ship, who actually used to be the coordinator at North Carolina under Larry Fedora. He's coming back for another go-round. They were terrible last year on defense. They were 105th nationally in scoring defense, 97th in rushing defense, 84th in passing defense, 94th in total defense. They were 100th in defensive efficiency, 106th in defensive explosiveness. Any way you look at it, North Carolina's defense was bad last year, but they did deal with some injuries. And here's the thing about North Carolina. They've recruited very, very well under Mac Brown the past couple of years. They've recruited some big-time players on defense. Now, they've been young in the past couple of years. They've taken some bumps along the way. But a lot of those guys are now ready to become impact players. Guys like Tony Grimes at cornerback. Guys like Storm Duck. Potentially an an impact true freshman on the defensive line and Travis Shaw out of the state of North Carolina, which everybody in the country wanted. They have some players on that side of the ball. I'm curious to see if Gene Chizik can find a way to get more out of them. They have to. They have to find a way to get more out of those guys. So if they can do that, just get at least marginally better defensively, and they hit on the quarterback position, watch out for this game in Chapel Hill. Because I'm still not a 1,000% sold on Notre Dame. Michael Mayer is fantastic. I think Chris Tyree is a really good player. I just got done re-watching the Fiesta Bowl from last year. I think Chris Tyree can be a really good explosive running back for them. Isaiah Foskey off the edge as a pass rusher. That dude's dynamic rushing the passer. But I'm just not sold on the quarterback position. I know Tyler Buckner is the, the favorite to win that job, but... He played a fair amount last year, and you could see the potential. He's a dual-threat guy. He's very athletic. I'm just not sure. I mean, I know it's a different year. What I saw from him last year, he was certainly not there from a passing standpoint, and I need to see that from him before I fully buy into this Notre Dame team. I was honestly surprised that this line was only six and a half right now, but on the other hand, I kind of get it because I think Vegas kind of has some of the same questions I have about Notre Dame. Do they actually have a guy at quarterback? Do they? I don't know. And there's a lot of potential. There's a very high ceiling for North Carolina this year if they can hit on some of these young guys that they brought in the past couple years. They've recruited very, very well. So would not surprise me at all to see North Carolina upset Notre Dame in Chapel Hill on week four. I'm putting Notre Dame on upset alert. And that takes us to week five. Now, I've got Alabama. I'm just going to tell you all right now. I've got Alabama on this list three different times. So this is the first time I'm going to mention Alabama. Alabama is not going to lose three games in the regular season. I understand that. They are going to be a heavy favorite in every game they play. In fact, I expect them to be a double-digit favorite in every single game that they play this season. And I think they deserve that. I think they are that much better than everyone, at least from a talent perspective, on their schedule this year. But 
double-digit upsets happen sometimes. And I think there are a couple of tricky spots on the road for Alabama this year. Will they lose all three of these that I've picked out to be on this episode? No, of course not. But they could lose one. Certainly would not shock me at all. And the first one I've got on my list here for Alabama is their trip to Fayetteville to take on Sam Pittman in the Arkansas Razorbacks. Arkansas is a 17-point underdog in this game. So this is certainly going out on a limb. I am high on Arkansas this year. I have put a significant wager on them to go over 6.5. I th- I think, knock on wood here, I'm kind of stealing money at 6.5. I got that very, very early in the summer, like back in mid-May. But I like this Arkansas team. They have a lot of players coming back from a, a, a kind of a renaissance Arkansas team last year, and I fully expect them to continue that momentum into 2022. Now, is that enough to beat Alabama? I mean, that is a stretch. I will admit that is certainly a stretch. But if you look at week five, I think this is the game I could pinpoint as a potential upset spot. Alabama is the better team. Alabama is more talented. Alabama is going to be the better team, maybe more talented team every time they take the field in the regular season this year. That will always be the case, but it doesn't mean they can't lose. And we know how good Alabama is really on offense and defense. We know Will Anderson is a Heisman Trophy potential contender. I love Dallas Turner coming off the edge. But if there is a spot on that defense where Alabama might have a little bit more vulnerability than anywhere else, I think it's between the tackles. I think it's up the middle of that defense. They're good in the middle of that defense. They have really good defensive tackles. It's Alabama. Of course, they're good. DJ Dale, Byron Young, Tim Smith, those guys are really good players. But they're not elite. At least they have not been elite to this point. We're not talking about Georgia's interior defensive line from last year. They aren't those guys. And an inside linebacker, I'm not 100% sold on those guys being superstars either. I know Henry Toto came with a lot of fanfare from Tennessee last year because he was a former five-star recruit and did some good things for Tennessee when he was there under Jeremy Pruitt. But he was okay last year guys like he was a liability for them at times and there's a reason he came back for his senior year he came back because he didn't like his feedback from the NFL guys from the scouts that that's the fact of the matter he would not have come back because he loves Alabama that much he came back because he didn't get good feedback because he didn't have a good year last year then you insert Jalen Moody for Christian Harris I think that's a downgrade Christian Harris is the better player so I think I'm not saying Alabama's weak up the middle of defense I'm saying if there's a spot where they are vulnerable It's the middle of their defense. And that just so happens to be where Arkansas does a lot of their work. With a guy like KJ Jefferson, a quarterback, who's a dual threat guy, but he's a different kind of dual threat guy. He's a big, physical, pounded at you, like Tim Tebow-esque dual threat quarterback that just eats up yards in a physical manner. It's an interesting matchup for Alabama. Alabama's more talented. They should win the football game, certainly. But if Arkansas brings their A game, and I love Kendall Browns as an offensive coordinator, I think he does a fantastic job of game planning and identifying teams' weaknesses. And let's not forget that Arkansas gave Alabama a hell of a game in Tuscaloosa last year. It was a 42-35 game. It's a one-touchdown game, and that was an Alabama team that played for national title last year and won the SEC. Now, I do think Arkansas will have a lot of issues stopping Alabama. I think that's fair, but is Alabama going to be as dynamic at wide receiver as they were last year the past couple years? I'm not sure the answer is 100% yes. I know people want to believe that it's just plug and play with Jermaine Burton and Tyler Harrell, those kind of guys. Maybe, possibly, I don't know. I don't know if that's 100% a done deal. And it's in Fayetteville. It's going to be a massive game. Obviously, the Hog Faithful are fully in. They are bought into Sam Pittman and the culture of this team. And look, that's old hat for Bama. It's a wild place every time they play on the road. But 
if Arkansas gets off to a hot start, and let's say, you know, Alabama's got to help them. Alabama turns the ball over a couple times, like they did to AM last year. They helped AM win that game. AM would not have won that game if, if Bama would have played their, like, even like their C level game. Bama played very, very poorly in that game. So it's happened before. It could happen again. I think Arkansas is good enough to take advantage if Alabama does not play up to their potential in this game. But that's just the first of three Alabama upset alerts I've got for you today. But going on to week six, I've got. Clemson on upset alert as they travel up north to take on Boston College in Chestnut Hill. This has already been designated as the traditional annual red bandana game for Boston College, which if there wasn't already enough juice when you play Clemson at home when they come to town, that gives a little extra juice. And then Clemson is still just a team that I don't know what to think about them. I know the frontline talent they have, especially on the defensive line, the defensive front seven. It's fantastic. It's, it's as good as any front seven in the country coming into the year, at least their, their starting unit. I have questions about their depth, but that's kind of always the case with Clemson. They, they're really good with their starting 22 usually, but they might not have the depth of teams like Alabama and Georgia because they recruit really well, but they don't year in, year out recruit at that kind of level. And they have holes in the roster because Dabo Swinney has this inexplicable enmity towards the transfer portal and just won't go to the portal. And I think that works to the detriment of their overall roster. And it did come back to hurt them last year. They had a lot of injuries, whether it was the offensive line, the defensive line, receiver. They had injuries they had to deal with, and they just didn't have the quality depth that some of these other teams had. It's like a team like Georgia had a ton of injuries last year, but they still found a way to go undefeated during the regular season because they recruit at that top three level year in and year out. I know people think Clemson does, but they don't. They recruit at a top 10-ish level year in and year out, but not a top three level. Every now and then they'll finish inside the top three, but that's not a consistent thing for them. So they just don't have the quality depth that teams like Georgia, Alabama, Ohio State have. So I have concerns there. And But the big thing is I have so many concerns about DJ Uyungle in that offense. I do think they have some players that should be in for bounce back years. I think Joseph God, if he can stay healthy, can be a really good receiver for them. Same thing for EJ Williams. I think in year two that Will Shipley should be improved. He was good for them last year. Him and Kobe Pace, the running backs, a really nice one-two punch. Davis Allen's a nice tight end that they have. But DJ Uyungle, man, I've said it before in this show. I will say it probably a couple more times before the start of the season. He was arguably, and I can make a really strong argument that he was, the worst quarterback, at least from a production standpoint and number standpoint, in the entire ACC last year. That's not hyperbole, guys. That's a very, very real thing. And I know Dabo thinks they're just going to wave the magic wand and things will be magically fixed and he's going to be better this year. And maybe that's the case. No, they're they're really propping up the fact that he lost a lot of weight and got in better shape. And that should help. And I don't know. I mean, we haven't seen him out there on the field yet. All I can go off of is what I saw at their spring game. It's a very small sample size, and it's a controlled environment. But there were still some mechanical issues in that game. He was still overthrowing guys. Not every play, but he was still doing it. And that's concerning. That that, that would have to be concerning if I'm a Clemson fan. I know Clemson fans want to kind of like plug their ears and close their eyes and say, no, 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 not listening, not listening, not listening. But like, that's... A legitimate concern. I do not think it's a stretch at all to say that Boston College will have the superior quarterback in this game. Philip Jerkovich, guys, is legit. When he's healthy, he was not healthy last year, but when he's healthy, that guy is legit. He was a really highly rated guy coming out of high school. He's one of the top quarterbacks in the country for a while in that class. Went to Notre Dame, and Ian Book was there, and you know Brian Kelly was riding with Ian Book, so he transfers to Boston College, and he's kind of been their guy. He dealt with some injuries last year, but when he was 
when he played, he was productive for them. He's also a dual threat guy, which people don't really talk about. He's a really good athlete as well. He's going to be the better quarterback in that game. I feel pretty confident saying that. He's got Zay Flowers back at wide receiver to throw to, who was one of the better receivers in the, in the ACC last year. Phil Garros back at running back, who's a thousand yard guy last year. So when they have all their pieces back and healthy with Jeff Hathley, there's the head coach. He's done a great job getting that program back into, I don't want to say contention, but to respectability. This is a scary spot for Clemson. Clemson is more talented. Clemson should win this game. Absolutely. I totally agree with that. But a lot of teams should win games and then they don't end up winning those games. I could not find a line for this game right now, but I would project this to be at least a touchdown spread in Clemson's favor here, if not more than that. And I think that Boston College, with the weapons they have on offense, especially with Phil Jerkovich, who I think is the better quarterback here, I think quarterback is the most important position on the field. Obviously, there's more to winning a football game than just having the better quarterback, but I do think this is a scary spot for Clemson. But let's go ahead and move along here. Let's go to week seven. Now, this is the second upset alert for Alabama on the road this season. Alabama is traveling to Tennessee, to Knoxville, Tennessee, the third Saturday of October to take on the Volunteers. Bama's a 14 and a half point favorite here right now on August 2nd. And Bama should win this game. They're the better team, the more talented team, the deeper team, the better coach team, all of those things. Yes, all those things are true. They're a heavy favorite for a reason. They're a two touchdown plus favorite in this game for a reason because they're better. But like Arkansas back in week five, Tennessee is a team that I also believe is capable. They are good enough, talented enough to beat Alabama if Alabama opens the door for them to do so. Alabama will have to help them. If Alabama loses this season, it's because they helped the team beat them along the way because there's no team on Alabama's schedule, like I said earlier, that should beat Alabama if Alabama plays their A game. But teams have trouble, especially college teams, have trouble bringing their A game week in and week out, especially in hostile environments like Neyland Stadium was going to be when Alabama comes down. That'll probably be a 3.30 CBS game if I had to project right now, almost certainly, right, at this point. So it's not going to be a night game, which would certainly help Tennessee. That will work to Tennessee's advantage. But that crowd is going to be insane. I've been to many a game in Neyland Stadium, and when they are good, it's a very tough environment. Even when they're not good and they're playing a good team, like a, a rival of sorts, that uh, is a tough place to play. And Alabama is their number one rival. Obviously, it's Alabama. So, of course, that place is going to be a madhouse. Now, Alabama has been there, done that. that. That alone will not beat the Crimson Tide. But Tennessee, how they run things offensively with their tempo, Bama's had trouble with that at times. They've gotten better at that over the years. But the tempo, the pace at which Tennessee runs at, I do think that they have the skill players to give Alabama some issues. I relate Hendon Hooker, especially as his dual threat ability. Defensively, I have some major questions about like who are the actual playmakers for Tennessee. I do not think they're going to be able to stop Alabama unless Alabama stops themselves. But if Alabama makes some mistakes, they turn the ball over, give Tennessee some short fields, crowd gets into it, things start snowballing before you know it Tennessee's got a lead late in the fourth quarter and somehow they find a way to pull the improbable upset and win a game that they just simply haven't been able to win for almost two decades now is that likely no of course not Alabama should win this game but that's the point of upsettler I'm going for games that are off the radar that no one is talking about right now that have a chance have the potential to be an upset spot because it happens every single week in college football guys there's a game where somebody gets upset that no one saw coming. And that's what I'm trying to do here. I'm trying to see it coming before it actually happens. 
All right, let's keep this thing rolling along. Let's go to week eight. Let's go to the Big Ten. Have we, have we done a Big Ten game yet? I don't think that we have. I guess we did at Wisconsin. It was a non-con game against Washington State, but we haven't done a true full-on Big Ten matchup. So let's do one here. Let's go Minnesota at Penn State. This is the designated whiteout game for Penn State this year. Penn State's a nine-point favorite. It's going to be a night game. It's, it's kind of weird they're doing this against Minnesota. Usually they save the whiteout games for like their biggest home game, which this year would be Ohio State coming to town. But Fox kind of got in the way of that. And they've already picked that as a big noon kickoff game. And Penn State didn't want to waste their whiteout on a day game. They want to do it for a night game. So they've saved the whiteout for Minnesota, who I actually think is going to be a contender for the Big Ten West. In fact, right now I would say Minnesota or Wisconsin would probably be my two picks to win the Big Ten West this year. And it's an it's a wide open conference. Nebraska, I can see an argument for it. Even Purdue, I told you guys I'm not as high on them. I can maybe see an argument for them. But I like this Minnesota team. They were like the quietest nine-win team in the country last year. A big part of that had to do with the fact they lost to Bowling Green in non-con play and their passing game was so anemic. But they bring back Kirk Soraka from 2019. You know, he was offensive coordinator in 2019 when Minnesota had a fantastic year and Tanner Morgan put up all these great numbers. They've brought him back. They get Mo Ibrahim back at running back. He was fantastic week one against Ohio State. He got hurt and they ended up losing that game, but he was running all over Ohio State, which I guess a lot of teams did. But he's a really good back. Him and Trey Potts back, who also went down himself after he came in for Ibrahim early in the year, got hurt about midway through the year. They have a true number one receiver in Chris Altman-Bell. He's back for his senior season. And Minnesota has seven starters back from a defense that was one of the best defenses in the country last year. They were top 10 in essentially every single major defensive statistical category. I think this really could be the year that Minnesota takes that next up under P.J. Fleck and does win the Big Ten West. It is a tall task for them to go in to Happy Valley and win at night in, a, in wide-out conditions. That is going to be an extraordinarily tall task for them. Again, I expect Penn State to win this game. To win this game. If I had to pick right now, I would pick Penn State. But I don't think it's out of the question for Minnesota to find a way to win this game. I mean, part of it is that, okay, well, it's, yeah, it's the whiteout game. Whiteout conditions is going to be tough, but is it going to be as crazed an environment as it would be if it was Ohio State? I just, I don't think that it will be because of the opponent. And Minnesota is just not a brand name like Ohio State. I think Penn State's going to be a pretty good football team this year. I think they'll be, a, you know, a eight and four, maybe, maybe nine and three type team this year. But as long as Sean Clifford is a quarterback, I just can't help but feel that there's a cap on the ceiling of this program. I love Parker Washington at wide receiver. I think Mitchell Tinsley coming in from Western Kentucky is going to be a guy that's going to break out in the Big Ten. They have some weapons at receiver. Again, I just, I, I'm not a believer. I'm just not a believer in Sean Clifford. He's been good. He's been good enough to keep the job. They've tried to take the job away from a couple different times. But they haven't really been able to do that. He's done just enough to keep the job, but there's a ceiling. He has a ceiling. The program has a ceiling with him as their quarterback. I think that's pretty well documented at this point. And he does have a propensity to make some turnovers at inopportune times. And if he does that in a game like this, wideout conditions or not, I think Minnesota is good enough to take advantage of that, especially if they can reactivate the passing game under Kirk Soraka. You know, last year it was bad. It was flat out bad. Tanner Morgan regressed statistically in a major way but he gets back the offensive coordinator 
under which he had his best season. So I'm very curious to see what that's going to be able to do to unlock this Minnesota offense. And if it does unlock the Minnesota offense and they get back closer to what they were in 2019, now they don't have their receivers. There's no Rashad Bateman. There's no Tyler Johnson. But they could absolutely come into Penn State, and I don't want to say shock the world, but as a nine-point underdog, it would be a pretty significant upset to come into Penn State, into Happy Valley, and win in wide-out conditions. All right, next up in Week 9, let's go to the Big 12. I don't think we've done a Big 12 game, so let's get to the Big 12 here. Oklahoma is making the trip to Iowa State as a six-point bear. I know I said one of my criteria was that it needs to be like at least a touchdown. Technically, touchdowns are six points, so... We'll call it we'll call it an upset alert. I'm putting Oklahoma on upset alert here as to travel to Iowa State. Now this is a tricky one for me. I didn't really see any games that I loved as upset alerts this week, but I'm gonna go with Oklahoma on upset alert here because Iowa State has played this program so well. Now I know it's a little bit different of a different story because it's not a Lincoln Riley Oklahoma team. It's a very different Oklahoma team. And I, I'm not a big believer in Iowa State this year. I think Matt Campbell's done a really, really nice job there. I mean, that, that program was one of the worst in all of college football, really, over the past 50-plus years. And he's done a really good job of stabilizing that program, raising their ceiling a little bit. They're losing a lot of key players. They're losing, obviously, Brees Hall at running back and Brock Purdy at quarterback. I think Brock Purdy was a little bit overvalued. I think he had a good first year or two and then kind of I don't want to say he fell off he was never bad I just don't think he was ever an elite quarterback but he did a really good job for them for a couple years as a multi-year starter you also lose your tight ends Charlie Kohler you lose Chase Allen I, I like the receivers bringing back I think Xavier Hutchinson's probably gonna be one of the best receivers in the entire Big 12 I think Jalen Knowles a guy that as a freshman last year did some good things to him as kind of like a true slot receiver so I like those options there I just have questions about the quarterback position. I know the coaching staff is high on Hunter Deckers, but we'll see. I don't know. Jareel Box's not going to be Brees Hall. He's just not going to be. This program, it hasn't really been built on offense. It's been built on defense. That's what Matt Campbell's built this program on. And they were the ones that really kind of spearheaded this, this new like 3-3-5 defense that's kind of really taken over all of college football, stopping these spread offenses. But they only have three starters coming back from last year's defense. And Iowa State is just not one of those programs that recruits at an elite level. So like some teams reload, Iowa State's not there. I know they have a really good coaching staff. I believe in them, but they've got to rebuild to a degree. They've got to build back up to that. And I just don't know if this is the year where that defense is going to be a top 20 caliber defense. And with the losses they have offensively, if they don't have the defense to lean on, I have questions there. So I'm not high on, on Iowa State this year. But I also have questions about Oklahoma. We know Dylan Gabriel is coming in at quarterback, and he did a really good job at UCF. Jeff Levy, he's a great offensive mind. He's been very productive wherever he's been calling plays. So you would think this is going to be a match made in heaven, right? He gets to kind of be reunited with Dylan Gabriel. It should be no problems. Marvin Mims back at receiver. Brent Venables is a defensive guy, one of the best teams coordinators in a lot of college football the past decade plus. And he's going to fix all their defensive woes at Oklahoma and change the game for them. Maybe, maybe that's the case. I just don't know if year one's going to be that year. They have a lot of turnover guys, a lot of guys in the transfer portal. They went out and got a lot of guys from the portal. Culturally, I think it's going to be a little bit of a challenge this year. It's going to take them a year. It does really every new coach to establish their culture, especially when you have a culture like 
the Clemson culture that Britt Venables is trying to bring over, where it's just very different. You know, he went on this little rant the other day about recruiting, about commitments and that kind of thing. It's just a different kind of culture. And it takes time to build that. It took Dabo Swinney time to build that. So I don't know if it's going to be smooth sailing right away for Oklahoma. Going to Iowa State, which can be, Jack Trice can be a tricky place to play. You know, Matt Campbell, he has a habit of playing really well against the better teams on their schedule and finding ways to lose to teams that they shouldn't lose to. That's kind of been his MO there at Iowa State. And this just has all the makings of a game that Iowa State's going to play up. And again, I'm not a big believer in Iowa State this year, but I'm also not a big believer in Oklahoma. I think, you know, Oklahoma's better than Iowa State. They should win this game. But this game's only a six-point line for a reason. And I do think that Oklahoma should definitely be on upset alert heading into Ames, Iowa. All right, guys, we are down to our final three upset alerts for today. Let's go to week 10. Now, this is the third and final appearance that the Alabama Crimson Tide will make. I know Alabama fans right now are about to have an aneurysm because I've got them on this list three different times. And knowing Alabama fans, I know that they are going to take that as an insult, as a personal slight on their character, as evidence that I have absolutely no clue what I'm talking about. But hear me when I say this. I think Alabama is one of the three teams in the country this year that can actually win the national title. In fact, I would argue, based on my definition of upset alert, that Alabama fans should take the fact that they have appeared three times on my upset alert list as a badge of honor. Because again, these are supposed to be completely off the radar upsets that no one's talking about right now. And for that to be the case, one team has to be a prohibitive favorite. And I know on this list, some were bigger favorites than others, but at least a touchdown or so. But I would tell Alabama fans that this is a sign of respect for you. The fact that I believe that you're going to be such a massive favorite in all these games that no one is going to go into any game this year thinking that you're going to lose the game. But this is college football. Crazy things happen. And it is fun to speculate as to what those crazy things might ultimately end up being. So, For the third and final time on my upset alert list, the Alabama Crimson Tide are on upset alert week 10 when they travel to Baton Rouge to take on the LSU Tigers. And I've said it two times already. I'll say it one more time for old time's sake. Alabama is the better team. Alabama is more talented. Alabama is deeper. Their culture is more established. There is no reason they should lose this game. But if we are looking for potential off-the-radar upset-type picks, which those things happen, guys. I know fans don't want to admit that, and they take it as a personal insult when you deign to suggest that their team might possibly get upset at some point in the year. But upsets happen. I honestly did not think Texas A&M had a chance in hell last year of beating Alabama, even though that was in College Station, because Alabama was just that much better. But they lost because they didn't play well. So it's possible it could happen. Is it likely? No. That's why it would be a massive upset if they lose any of these games. But I do think this could be another potentially tricky spot for Alabama. By the time these two teams play on October 29th, which somebody correct me if I'm wrong here. I feel like that. I'm actually, I'm almost certain that is a week earlier than these teams normally play. In fact, I know that it is because Georgia and Florida always play that final weekend of October. And then it's the following weekend when Alabama and LSU play. So this game is a week earlier this year, a little bit different. It's not going to get the primetime CBS treatment, which it has in years past. It's been a couple years because LSU hasn't been great since, I guess, 2019, which wasn't that long ago. But it's been a couple years since this game has been the primetime CBS special. But it is still very much a rivalry. 
LSU does not like Alabama. Alabama does not like LSU. And this pick for me, it's not so much about Alabama. I think Alabama is going to be very, very good, but I'm very intrigued by LSU right now. And I've become more and more intrigued with them the closer we get to the season. You know, about two months ago, I was like, man, LSU, like six and six, seven and five. But the more I think about it, the more I watch some of the tape from last year and see some of the guys they have coming back and just dive into the, some of the numbers, the more I like this LSU team, at least the more I could potentially like this LSU team. There's a lot of things that we don't know, obviously, with a lot of turnover from last year's roster, from last year's coaching staff. There are certainly some unknowns there. A lot of this absolutely does hinge on whether or not LSU hits a home run at quarterback. Can Miles Brennan be that guy? Can Jaden Daniels coming in from Arizona State be that guy? Because if one of those two players, and I guess I should also throw Garrett Nussmeyer into the into the picture, into the equation here, because he played quite a bit to end the season last year. That's one of the reasons that Max Johnson transferred. It's not, obviously not the only reason, but it was a factor of sorts. So he's certainly in the picture. So if any of those three quarterbacks, whether it's Miles Brennan, Jaden Daniels, or Garrett Nussmeyer, are a home run for Brian Kelly and staff, all bets are off with LSU because they have talent, guys. They have recruited very well year after year after year. Kayshawn Boutte is as good of a receiver as there is in the SEC. Certainly one of the top receivers in the country as well when healthy. Jack Besh was a really, really interesting guy last year for them as a pass catcher. Ostensibly, he was a tight end, but he really operated more as a receiver this year. It sounds like he's going to be moving more full-time to wide receiver. Jare Jenkins and Malik Neighbors are two more really nice complimentary pieces. They're not feature guys, but not everybody can be a feature player. You need those complimentary pieces, and Jenkins and Neighbors can certainly be that. John Emery at running back, he has never quite broken out yet, but he was a former big-time five-star recruit coming out of high school. Now might be his coming out party. It might be time for him to be that guy. You get Noah Kane, who was another highly recruited guy. had Did not perform well. Didn't work out well for him at, at Penn State, but that running game in general, it's offensive line, it's scheme, it's running backs, just hasn't been good for a little while now. But he's coming into LSU to back up John Emery. So they've got some pieces on offense. And you look at defense. Now, I know they technically, if you look at some of the the returning starter list here, technically it's only three returning starters. But I kind of dispute those numbers because a lot of these guys are starting caliber players. And I've started some games. Ali Gay, Jacqueline Roy, Mason Smith on the defensive line. That is a sneaky, not even really, I don't think it's sneaky. I think it's just flat out a good, dangerous defensive line, but no one's really talking about them like that. So that's why I call it sneaky. BJ Ojolari is one of the best edge rushers in the entire SEC. He might end up being one of the best edge rushers in the entire country if he can stay healthy. You got Micah Baskerville coming back at, at linebacker. You get Joe Fouché come over from Arkansas, who's fantastic for the Hogs last year. Now, I will admit, outside of Fouché, there are a lot of question marks in the back end, which is not really the norm for LSU. I mean, they like to to view themselves as DBU, obviously. So it's not as though they are without questions on this team. There are clearly questions. That's why they are viewed as maybe like a, a, a middle-of-the-pack SEC team coming to the season. But I think there's enough high-level talent, plus-level talent on this roster that if they hit at quarterback, all bets could be off in this game. This is almost certainly going to be a night game. In fact, I can guarantee you it will be a night game because Georgia-Florida is always a 3-30 game. They've already previously announced that on CBS. So this is going to be a night game. It's going to be an ESPN night game. Alabama has won in Baton Rouge at night before plenty of times. I'm not sitting here saying they cannot, but I think this could potentially be 
a tricky spot because I know everyone's looking for a spot where could Alabama possibly trip up and I think this is one of the spots where it could happen I don't hear too many people talking about this as a potential spot but again if LSU hits at quarterback and by this time in the season they should be more in the flow of these new schemes both offensively and defensively but at the end of the day obviously there is a talent gap between Alabama and LSU I'm not trying to say there is not What I would say, however, is that that talent gap is not nearly as wide as some would make it out to be, at least based on the preseason expectations of both these teams. Obviously, Alabama has the Heisman Trophy winner at quarterback, and that's the most important position on the field, so that certainly gives them an edge. But again, if LSU finds that answer, finds that guy at quarterback, all bets are off. Watch out. Upset alert. Okay, moving into week 11, let's stick in the SEC. What the hell? Let's do it. Georgia has not made an appearance on this list. I know a lot of Alabama fans are probably they're saying, why are we on this list three times and Georgia's only on here once? Well, you play in the SEC West, there's more potential trip-up spots for Alabama. It's a tougher schedule. Let's just be honest. Georgia playing in the East has a lighter schedule than what Alabama has. Alabama has to go to LSU, has to go to Tennessee, has to go to Arkansas. I mentioned earlier, obviously, Georgia at South Carolina, that's a very popular upset pick, but that's exactly why it did not make my upset alert list, because there are too many people talking about that. That could be a potential upset spot, but there's too many people talking about it. I'm not going to go there. But where I will go is week 11 to Starkville, Mississippi. Georgia is traveling out west to take on the Mississippi State Bulldogs. That is a trip that Georgia does not make very often. And this game falls in an interesting spot. It's following back-to-back games in Jacksonville against Florida and then Tennessee at home. Georgia will come off two, if they win both those games, if they win those games, will have come off of two really big divisional wins. And then they have at Kentucky following Mississippi State. So if you're looking for the classic trap game, I think this is it for Georgia. People are going to talk about Kentucky. You've already heard SEC Media Days. You heard, who was it? I think it was... Chris Doring, I believe it was, that said that Kentucky was going to beat Georgia November 16th. And he's not the first person that I have heard suggest that's a possibility. So there are already relatively high-profile members of the SEC media out there calling for Georgia at Kentucky as a potential upset spot. I also heard various prognosticators at SEC Media Days predict Georgia to lose at home to Tennessee. I heard people talk about Georgia losing on the road at South Carolina, as we mentioned a couple times. What I did not hear anyone suggest is that Georgia could potentially trip up and lose at Mississippi State. I could not find a line for this game right now. Maybe there's one out there. I couldn't find it. But like just about every other game that Georgia's going to play this year, I fully expect Georgia to go into this game as a two-plus score favorite. And they're better than Mississippi State. They recruit better. They have more talent. They're deeper. All of those things are 100% true. But it's a tricky spot on the road in Starkville. Cowbell is going crazy. Georgia's players are not going to be used to that. That's not something that they play. That's not a place they play every other year like those those SEC West teams do. It's right smack dab in the middle of the toughest four-game stretch of Georgia's season. It could be a situation where they're taking a deep breath after playing both Florida and Tennessee. And then also looking ahead to Kentucky the next week. But more than just that, I told you guys earlier this offseason, a month or so ago, a couple weeks ago, that I think Mississippi State is a vastly underrated football team. Their schedule is tough. So their record at the end of the day might not show that they're that good. They might end up being 6-6, six 7-5. Six, but they are a good football team, guys. They have a lot of players coming back from last year's team. They are one of only seven teams to finish last season inside the top 50 of the S&P+. 
and rank in the top 30 in Bill Conley's S&P Plus returning production numbers. They've got a lot of talented players back, a lot of really highly productive players for them from last year, including their quarterback, the signal caller, who's now going to go into his third year as their full-time starter in Will Rogers. If you look at Mike Leach's history with quarterbacks, when he gets a guy for their third year in the system, those players usually take off in a pretty big way. They do lose Makai Polk at receiver, but that's really never a problem for Mike Leach's offense. I mean, Polk was fantastic, but it's kind of a plug-and-play system at receiver, and they have a bunch of really talented guys coming back. Jaden Wallace coming back. Jameer Calvin's coming back. Jaquavius Marks at running back, which I know you said, well, they don't run the ball that much. True, that's true, but they use the running back out of the backfield in the passing game quite a bit. They have eight returning starters coming back on defense. This was a really good Mississippi State football team last year. Again, I know their record didn't indicate that. They ended up 7-6 on the year after the really honestly inexplicable bowl loss to Texas Tech. There were a number of games they absolutely should have won. The game at Memphis was flat stolen from them. Some of the worst officiating I've ever seen. They beat Arkansas in Fayetteville everywhere but the scoreboard because they had a, didn't have they had a kicker that just simply could not make a field goal, couldn't make the shortest field goals imaginable. They, had, they held open tryouts after that game on campus because that's how bad the kicking situation had gotten last year. They lost by a field goal to LSU at home. They lost to Ole Miss by 10 points at the end of the year. This easily, easily could have been a team that was 9-4, and 8-5, and five, that caliber team. And I know when I did my blind resume for Mississippi State a couple weeks ago, and some of you might not have heard this, so I'm going to repeat it here, just to remind you guys, with their total yardage margin last year, they were plus 1,254 yards. What that means is that on the season, they outgained their opponents by 1,254 yards. Statistically speaking, that's more along the lines of a team that usually wins eight or nine games, not six or seven games like Mississippi State did last year. In fact, that yardage margin was better than, here's just some random teams I pulled up. That was better than Baylor. That was better than Tennessee, better than Texas A&M, better than Iowa, better than Utah who won the Pac-12. By the way, Baylor did win the the Big 12 as well. Better than Oregon who played in the Pac-12 title game, better than Michigan State that was an 11-win team last year, better than Clemson, better than Wake Forest who played in the ACC title game. Those are all teams that if you look back to last year, most people would say, oh yeah, they were better than Mississippi State. And yeah, by record they were, but they also didn't have to play in the SEC West with the exception of Texas A&M, which, oh, by the way, Mississippi State beat A&M in college days. And Mississippi State also beat a very, very good NC State team earlier in the year. They were like Nebraska light. They were a really good team that found ways to lose games. Not to the degree that Nebraska did, but they found ways to lose games. And that kind of masked how good they actually were, like how productive they were within games, with the exception of those missed field goals and a couple turnovers here and there. And they've got 16 starters back, including their third-year starting quarterback, back from that team. This is a good Mississippi State team. Georgia is in a trap game spot here. Georgia's better. They have more talent. They should win this game. But if you're looking for a game to put Georgia on legitimate, true upset alert this season, a game that might be off the radar that no one really sees coming, I think this is is the game. I don't think it's South Carolina. I don't think it's Tennessee at home. I don't even think it's Kentucky. That's going to be a tough game for Georgia, too. You can make an argument for that one, certainly. But no one's talking about this game. And I think more people should be looking at this game as we head into the 2022 college football season. And then finally, week 12. I know, again, we, there are 13 weeks in the regular season. I get that. But rivalry weekend, man, it's just chaos. I don't know. I mean, technically, yes, I know someone's going to be a favorite. So if they lose, that's going to be an upset. You can put somebody on upset alert. But let's go with week 12 here. And my upset alert team 
is Clemson making their second appearance on this list. Now, this would not be as big of an upset, but Miami is traveling to Clemson as a seven and a half point underdog in this game. I happen to believe that Miami is going to be very good this year. I think Tyler Van Dyke is one of the best quarterbacks in the country. I think he's going to show that very early on this season. I fully expect Miami to win the ACC Coastal. I believe this very well could be the first of two potential matchups between Clemson and Miami if they both win their respective divisions of the ACC and face each other in Charlotte for the ACC title game. And I'm certainly not alone in suggesting that Miami is going to be better this year, that they could be a team that plays for the ACC title. But I'll be honest, guys, I listen to a lot of college football talk, a lot of college football coverage. I read a lot of college football coverage, and I have not seen anyone to date say that Miami is going to beat Clemson. In fact, I haven't really heard anyone even talk about that seriously because it's in Death Valley. Clemson has lost one time at home since 2014. They lost to Pitt, I think it was in 2016. That's the only time since 2014 that Clemson has lost a game at home. That This is going to be an uphill battle for Miami. I fully recognize that. And I think that's why no one's really talking about this seriously. They're saying, you know, Miami's going to be really good. They'll probably lose at Clemson. They'll probably lose at Texas A&M. But they're going to have a great season. Still probably going to win the Coastal. Play in the ACC title game. That's a huge step for, for, for Miami. And I agree with that. But I would also say I don't think it's outside of the realm of possibility that Miami could go into Clemson and win this game. Now, if I had to bet on it right now, am I going to bet on Miami straight up on the money line to go into Clemson and win? No, I'm not going to do that. I'm not a crazy person. I have not seen these two teams play yet. I need to see it for Miami. I think Miami can be really, really good and be a dangerous team this year, but I need to see that first before I'm going to put that kind of money on in a spot like this, which would be a major upset in the college football landscape. But I think Miami has some weapons on offense. I like Jalen Knighton at quarterback. I think Frank Frank Ladson, which is an interesting matchup, right? Frank Ladson, formerly at Clemson, transferred to Miami. Probably going to be Clemson, Miami's number one wide receiver this year. I love Tyler Van Dyke. I love Tyler Van Dyke. In fact, I'll say it right now. I think Miami has the clear quarterback edge in this game. And that's important, guys. If you're going to win one of these games against a very talented team, a team that potentially is more talented than you overall, which Clemson probably still is right now, you have to have an elite quarterback. You have to have that guy. You have to have Johnny Manziel in 2012 going into Tuscaloosa. You have to have that guy. And I think Miami has that guy. Miami's going to be much better coach this year. The fact of the matter is, guys, you go back and watch Miami last year. I had this offseason, doing some offseason film study. They were just incredibly poorly coached last year really more so on defense than offense and that's kind of strange right when Manny Diaz was a defensive guy himself but they were really poorly coached out of position pretty routinely I expect that to change this year with Mario Cristobal and staff coming in I think there's gonna be more discipline within this program and there's gonna be a better culture within this program now how quickly will they buy in how quickly can they establish that that remains to be seen and that is certainly a question mark But I think Miami has the tools to go into Clemson and win this game, especially if the Clemson offense does not take a dramatic step forward this year. If DJ Uwe Ungele is the same guy as last year or he's right around that, Miami could legitimately win this football game. And if that's the case, you know, if he's that same guy, they're probably by this point, the end of the season, have made a change. The true freshman, Cade Klubnick, big time five-star prospect, is going to be a very good quarterback. But is he going to be ready to be that guy as a true freshman? I have major questions. Give me Tyler Van Dyke in that matchup in this season. Miami beat some good teams last year too, guys. They're going to be better this year. They went up to Pitt late in the season and beat the ACC champion in their own stadium. 
They beat NC State at home. This is going to be a good Miami team. I feel very confident in saying that they are going to win the ACC Coastal. Now, are they going to be good enough to win at Clemson? That certainly remains to be seen. Clemson should be the favorite right now, and they'll probably win that game. But if you're looking for an upset alert, a spot where a highly ranked team could go down, this is certainly one of them. It's certainly feasible that Miami could go in there and win this football game, especially if Clemson does not take the step forward offense that they need to. The defense is going to be fantastic if they can stay healthy. But the offense, that was a problem last year, guys. It was a problem. If they don't take that step forward, I would put them on upset alert here in week 12. And you know what, guys? I lied. I wasn't going to give you an upset alert for Rivalry Week for all the reasons I laid out earlier. But what the hell? Let's do it anyway. I'll give you a quick one here. I don't think we've done a Pac-12 upset alert today. Have we? Let me think back. I guess Washington State at Wisconsin in a non-division matchup. That was a Pac-12 potential upset alert, but that was an upset alert for Wisconsin. Wazoo being the one pulling the upset, but I don't think we've done a a straight-up Pac-12 matchup. So let's go ahead and do one here real quick. And I I don't know how much of an upset alert this will actually amount to at that point in the season. The later you get in the season, obviously the harder it becomes because you just don't know how the season is going to transpire, who gets hurt, who gets upset. You just don't really know, but... Sitting here in early August, I would imagine that Oregon is going to be a a touchdown or so favorite on the road against Oregon State in the Civil War. I'm not even sure we're supposed to still call the Civil War. I think I remember reading somewhere, hearing somewhere that that's a no-no these days, just like calling the Georgia-Florida game in Jacksonville the world's largest outdoor cocktail party, which is exactly what it is. Apparently, calling that game that is, that's also now against the rules. Can't do that, but whatever. No, I'm still going to do that. I'm still going to call this matchup the Civil War because that's one of the greatest rivalry names there is in the entire country. Why would we possibly do away with that? But I think Oregon... Oregon, if they are indeed a touchdown or so favorite on the road against Oregon State in the Civil War, I'm going to put them on upseller. Now, I hesitate a little bit with this one. Number one, because it is a rivalry game and rivalries have a notorious habit of being very unpredictable and crazy things happen every year in these games. And number two, I'm still not quite 100% sure what to make of Oregon. I believe they are one of the most talented teams, probably one of the the two or three most talented teams in the Pac-12, but there's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of turnover on the roster, obviously with the coaching staff coming in, trying to establish a new culture. You got an offensive coordinator in Kenny Dillingham, who's been in OC at multiple places, whether it was Memphis, Auburn, Florida State, but he's never called plays before in his career. You don't exactly know what that offense is going to look like. You might be able to speculate and have an idea, but you don't really exactly know. I still think Oregon's probably going to make a, a 9-3, and 8-4 and caliber team. And I expect them to be the favorite in this game. But Oregon State is 100% capable of pulling this upset. They did it two years ago in the COVID year, which I know is a weird, strange, odd, absurd year. You kind of throw those results out. But Oregon State has been trending up recently under head coach Jonathan Smith. They have not quite broken through yet. I'm not sure I'm going to say it's going to happen this year. They have a sneaky tough schedule. They open with Boise at home and go to Fresno State. It's two tough group of five matchups to open the season. But this has been a pretty good offense under Jonathan Smith. If you remember that name, he used to be the coordinator at Washington. So he's an offensive guy. I mean, and they were productive last year. They were fourth nationally in offensive efficiency. They were 14th nationally in offensive explosiveness. They do lose B.J. Baylor at running back. It was a big part of their offensive success last year. But they also return Chance Nolan at quarterback. He is a fifth-year junior. He's been around the blocks, been around for a while 
the coaching staff spent all spring raving about this true freshman running back guy named Damian Martinez. I don't know much about him because I haven't seen him. I just know the coaching staff and people around that program are very, very high on him. They expect him to be the guy right away. We'll see. But it's important for Oregon State to find that guy because this has been an offense in recent years that has had a lot of success featuring the running game. And then on the other side of the ball, they weren't particularly good last year. In fact, I would say they were frankly bad defensively. They were not really good enough. That's why they were seven and six. But they do return eight starters off that unit. They promoted Trent Brave from inside linebackers coach to defensive coordinator. So we'll see if that has any kind of effect on what this defense is able to do this season. But there are enough players on this team returning from last year, and I have enough confidence in Jonathan Smith and that Oregon State offense, especially getting Chance Nolan back at quarterback, to think that this is a spot where they could certainly upset Oregon. This is an Oregon team I think is going to be good this year. I don't think Oregon's going to be a 6 and 6, 7 and 5 type team. I think they'll probably be 8 and 4, 9 and 3, but it's an Oregon team that I that I do think is going to be vulnerable to being upset in a game like this, especially in a rivalry spot against an in-state rival who is capable of beating them and certainly wants to because we know Oregon has been big brother in this rivalry and anytime Oregon State gets a chance to beat them and since his blood in the water kind of views Oregon as vulnerable they're going to want to take full advantage of that. So I would certainly put Oregon on upseller here to wrap up the regular season. But all right, guys, that's all I've got for you today. I sincerely appreciate all of you guys being here with me today to talk some college football. We are getting closer, guys. It is August now. We have actual college football this month. I cannot truly impart to you how exciting that is to me. I hope that's coming through, but I am freaking pumped up, man, and I know you guys are too. Unfortunately, we still have a couple of weeks left before the season kicks off, but that's okay. We're going to make the most of it. We still got a little bit of time here to preview the coming 2022 football season. Got some great content for you guys over the next couple weeks leading into kickoff. We're going to talk about teams that I like, teams that I don't like. We're going to take a look at the AP poll when it comes out, talk about teams that are too high, too low, just right. We're going to have a lot of fun with this leading up to week one, I guess week zero, and we're going to have a predictions extravaganza as well. So a lot of great stuff for you guys. We're going to have some guests for you, maybe even as soon as later this week. We're going to try to get that worked out for you guys. Don't forget, if you enjoy the show, which I hope that you are, if you made it this far, I hope you're not subjecting yourself to something that you are not enjoying. But if you are enjoying the show and you are so inclined, it would be amazing if you would help us out and go give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you can give us a rating. If you enjoy the show, that would be a huge, huge up as we continue to try to grow this thing out. So thank you guys for being here. Always appreciate it. I'm Tyler, and I'll talk to you guys next time. 